the power to see you be seated on your throne, to see you reigning in glory. And Lord, in seeing that, may you give our hearts the hope necessary to hold that one day we will be with you. And that vision that we see will be a reality. We thank you that through Jesus Christ, these things are possible. We thank you. We adore you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. He is risen. So knowing that the, uh, the, the bennies are cruising around the Holy Land right now, I, I got to thinking about that and thought, well, perhaps I'll say something uh, about that. In 1994, uh, when I pastored the International Church in Amman, we would, well, actually even before that, but anyway, each Easter we would enjoy the sunrise service on the slopes of uh, Mount Nebo. Where there, as the uh, dawn happened, you could see uh, the sun reflecting off the uh, skylight uh, of uh, Jerusalem. And, and I did, while we were there, miss one of the sunrise services. And in 1996, I spent Easter, uh, Passover, actually in Israel, uh, to attend a Little League uh, baseball umpiring clinic. And it was conducted by umpires who went from there to begin uh, their uh, work in the 1996 Olympics. And uh, so uh, one morning, as usual, we would off to the, uh, the baseball diamond that was near the Hula Valley. And, but this day was a little bit different. As we got on the road and were driving up there, no one was on the road. And uh, it was dead silent. And I thought, okay, this is strange. And as it, as it turned out, the Hula Valley was being uh, shelled uh, from just beyond the Lebanese uh, border. And we had entered, as it turns out, between a couple of checkpoints. And so we stopped. We listened to the emergency broadcast. And uh, we left. And when I say I left, I mean we did a, a high-speed U-turn and back the other way we went. And the reason for that is, is that the baseball clinic was no longer important. It didn't matter anymore. The only thing that mattered was getting to safety. And for those uh, history uh, buffs who think about such things, the, the next day, Israel began Operation Grapes of Wrath to stop the shelling. As an umpire, I participated in, in a lot of uh, wonderful games. By and large, they were they were real fun. I have a lot of uh, stories that I, that I could tell. But the one story that is meaningful for this morning is I was uh, behind the plate umping a game, and I saw my daughter, my oldest daughter, Michelle, and she's walking across the outfield uh, towards me. And uh, th that's unusual in itself. But I could tell something was wrong. And as she got closer... Closer, I, I, I paused the entire game, and I went out to her, and she told me uh, that the car 
they had been coming uh, to see the game and they had been rear-ended along the way and that Marie, Melinda, and Barb were still there. And she was shaken. One of the uh, women that we knew there, she was married to the regional director of USAID, said, I'll, I'll drive you in, uh, in my car. Uh, just to let you know, because I'm not going to finish or go along with the story, uh, the physical injuries were, were pretty minor, the emotional a little more, but, but all is well. The, the rest of that story could fill up this sermon. But the point I want to make to you at this moment is that I left. And I left immediately. My umpire's mask, my chest protector, the shin guards, they were in a string behind me as I went to the car because the only thing that mattered was baseball. No, it didn't matter at all. The game didn't matter at all. The only thing that mattered was the safety of Barb and the girls. Now, you can't have, uh, help but have noticed my emphasis on the word left. In Matthew, we're told that the disciples left their boats. In uh, Matthew, again, in 18, when the sheep had gone astray, the shepherd left the 99. When we're seeing this picture at the cross of Jesus Christ, the disciples left. They left. It's also Peter said this, we have left everything. In, in Mark, even Jesus uh, dismissed his spirit. He uttered a loud cry. That word uttered is uh, uh, left. It could be translated a loud cry left him and he breathed his last. All the exact same word. And we find in the same connection with the Samaritan woman, this very word. Let's read the text. It's an extended text, but I'm going to read all of it. There's so many important things in here. It's in John 4, in verses 27 through 42. John 4, 27 through 42. So just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking to her? So the woman left with her water jar, went into town, and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, while they're coming, meanwhile, the disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. For those of you who were with us in the worship this morning, uh, the word to telestai should come to mind. It is finished. To accomplish his work. You do, uh, you, uh, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. 
Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. There are many exciting things about this text and the the richness that it contains. I can't explore them all, but I would like to point out a few things. First, this is, and you may know this, you may not, this is the most extended recorded conversation that Jesus ever had with anyone, ever. This is the longest conversation in the biblical record. Second, she is the first ethnic and cultural religious outsider that Jesus revealed himself as Messiah to. And finally, and I I think most surprising for most of us, nowhere does the text describe the woman as promiscuous or, in fact, even as a sinner. And nowhere does he tell her to go and sin no more, as we're told by so many. Now, all of my Christian life, uh, I was uh, saved when I was in the army, but as I went to the church, every time I heard this, uh, this message, it was always about this woman, in many ways about how immoral she had, uh, a life she had lived. And, and that's why she went to the well in the heat of the day uh, to hide her shame. We presume that uh, she was divorced for cause, Uh, All those times. But I've, you know, as I want to do, I did a little bit of research. And that could be true. I'm not saying it's not. But I want to offer you another narrative. Perhaps she had been married as a, a prepubescent bride at eight or nine, which was common in Samaria. And under that law, perhaps she had been married to an elderly man. And then through the Leverite system of marriage, perhaps they had died and she had been widowed. Or perhaps she was infertile and they cast her aside. Perhaps they, were, they abandoned her. And given that five was the maximum number of times you could be married in Samaria, Perhaps she became, quite legitimately, as it was culturally in that day, a concubine legal under Samaritan law. Whatever the case, I want you to hear this because I have a broader point to make about that. And that is Jesus never, look at the text from the beginning, he never cautioned, condemned, or rebuked her. In fact, it's easily argued that he treated her with dignity and respect. And uh, and am I saying that she wasn't immoral and all that narrative is wrong? That's not what I'm saying. Am I trying to introduce her as a virtuous uh, woman who was held down by the uh, really some of the hateful things in the culture that day? No, I'm not. What I'm trying to do is show you that being faithful to the text 
requires that when we're speculating about something, that we say that that's what we're doing. Because when you hear the same thing long enough in your mind, in my mind, it actually becomes part of the text. And it is not. And that's important for us to understand. Because when we use our speculation, what we do is we start to think of the story about Jesus intervening, intervening in this uh, woman's immoral life and, and uh, liberating her from her sex life. While that may be true, that's not what the text says. And, or is it a story about Jesus delivering a woman from a culture that truly devalued women? No. That's not what this text is about. This text is a story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, revealing himself to a woman who believed and became an exemplar of a true worshiper, that is, one who worshiped in spirit and in truth. And when we focus on her and her backstory, we miss what's right in front of us in the text. Verse 27, uh, and there, there are some other things I'm going to mention about, not her backstory, but about women. Verse 27, it tells us that the disciples marveled that Jesus was talking with her. Now, we read this because we've read it for 2,000 years. Maybe not you and I individually, but, you know, we've got this 2,000 years of history, and we read right over that. Okay, the disciples marveled about this. You, this is exactly the same word that said of Peter when he looked into the empty tomb and nothing was there but the clothing, and it said he marveled. This is a big word. They were truly stumped. They didn't know. In fact, they ended up not saying anything, either to her or to Jesus. They were just flummoxed. They didn't know what to do. Well, let me give you a little background so that you can understand this a little better. You have to understand that the notions that they carried at that day were actually more Greco-Roman than they were Hebrew. I mean, the Greco-Roman influence turned the biblical notion of womanhood into a cruel joke. Uh, for example, at that day, a devout Jewish man could not speak to a woman in public, not even his wife or his daughter. And in fact, a devout Jewish man prayed every day, Thank God I was not born a woman. What? I mean, these notions are so foreign to us that we say, you're joking. No, I'm not joking. You're saying this can't be true. This must be false. Well, let me give you a little background. Let me give you the biblical worldview where women were coming from, and maybe you'll understand this whole notion of of marveling because that had been lost in Jesus' day. And that's really important because when you see what was, you'll see how easy it was that Jesus did what he did. They, they say that Jesus was some kind of radical and he broke all these traditions. Yeah, I'm going to go break all these. He did not. He was not. He was authentic. 
And it was his authenticity that drove him to speak to the woman because he would have spoken to anyone. Because that's the godly thing, not this other nonsense. Let me, let me tell you about the biblical worldview. Did you know that in ancient Israel, prior to this first century uh, business, women were involved in every area of life the only thing they could not do was be a priest in the temple. That was it. I mean, Proverbs 31 tells us about how they were involved in commerce and real estate, even manual labor. I mean, from top to bottom. Uh, women were not excluded from temple worship. They played music in the sanctuary. They played, they, saw, they sang, they danced with men. In religious processions. This is all in the Bible. I can give you the verses. I'm not going to give you them now. They participated in the music and the festivities and weddings and religious service. I mean, think of Miriam. Miriam led all the women of Israel in worship. Deborah was a judge and a prophetess. And the scriptures specifically say that while she was doing that, she was a wife and a mom at the same time. In Genesis, hear me, husbands, in Genesis, God told Abraham, listen to your wife, Sarah. Husbands, you need to listen to your wives. I mean, think of Abigail. Abigail was recognized for her ability to navigate a politically tense conflict between David and Nabal, her husband. There are, in the Bible, many sharp and gifted women embedded in the pages of Scripture. But by the first century, that was all gone. That was all gone. Why? In the first century, the woman's life was confined almost entirely to family, private life. Women were not allowed to do commerce. Women were not allowed. I know you're saying, well, Lydia, Lydia wasn't a Jewish woman. Women were not allowed to testify in court. They were rarely seen outside of their homes. Respectable women were to stay inside the home. Most of the women in the New Testament that you run across, in fact, were illiterate because the rabbis did not consider women worthy of learning and reading and studying the scriptures. In fact, the Talmud tells us it is foolishness to teach Torah to your daughter. I'm hoping that you're getting a sense, at least some sense of why the disciples marveled. The Talmud summed up the situation of women by saying that women should be swathed like mourners, isolated from people, and shut up in prison, meaning their home. What in the world happened? What, what brought about this drastic change from Ruth and Abigail and those people at, to that time to this? Well, I, I think I know. And I'll offer this to you, that this degraded view, I believe, was brought to them courtesy of Alexander the Great. What? 
<laughs> Alexander the Great. Here's some things you may know, you may not know. I, I don't know, but Greek culture and language held sway from India all the way back to Greece for 300 years to include all of this territory, all of it. And it wasn't simply because Greek was the trade language. Oh, it's the trade language. That's why people know. No, it's the language. It, they, they ruled this entire area for 300 years. In fact, all of you have heard of the Queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. What might surprise you is she wasn't Egyptian. Not a drop. She was Greek through and through like the 300 years of ancestors who ruled Egypt, were all Greek. And yet she was the first ruler in 300 years to ever bother to even learn the Egyptian language. An amazing thing that you see here. And so it was over 300 years that the rabbis slowly relegated women to this place of uh, isolation. So what Jesus did was remarkable, truly, for that day. And it was his authenticity that drove him to do it. But it's really what she did that turns the page. John 4, 28 tells us, so the woman left her water pot and went into the city. Now, this is what Peter did when he ran to the tomb on resurrection morning. He left in such a rush that nothing else mattered. I mean, this woman, she was so excited about what had happened that she dropped everything, including water, necessary for her life in order to get back to the village. Why? Because what she was doing was no longer important. Her excitement about Jesus and her wanting to tell others about him had become the priority. Now, Jesus had won her, and he had won her trust by, he's the one who tore down the walls. We don't even see it. You see, without that background, and I know it was extended, but it was important for me to give that to you so that you know that what Jesus did was what tore down the walls. In fact, we get all bent out of shape. You know, woman, give me a drink. Oh, uh, he's commanding her to do something. No, 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 no. That's not what we're supposed to see. What you need to see here is that he acknowledged her as a person. That's number one. He spoke to her. He spoke to her. She's like, what's her response? You recall from last week. You recall from what you know from the scripture. What? You don't do this. And not only was he a Jewish man, he wasn't simply a Jewish man. He was a rabbi. In other words, he was considered by her the one who pervades and contains and reinforces and makes this other stuff happen. Not with Jesus. He named his thirst and he asked if she could do something about it. In other words, in short, he treated her with dignity. He treated her with respect. He treated her as if she were a human person. Wow. And this blew the disciples' minds. 
and it blew her mind too. The fact that he engaged with her at all, which we see is, well, yeah, I mean, that's what anybody would do. No, it's not. Not in that day. Not then. There was no arrogance. There was no condescension. He saw her without shaming her. Do you realize all he did was tell her her life situation? Look at the text. He made no judgment about it. The judgments about what he said are the judgments that we make. What she saw was, here's a person who is communicating with me, who's looking at me like I'm a real person, and they know me. Clearly, she said he was a prophet. He knows me, but what? But he accepts me. He did not shame her. If it was immoral, I mean, why did she come in the, in the heat of the day? Well, if it was a morality issue, she felt shame. If not, she felt cursed. Either way, she felt isolated. The conversation between her, look at this conversation. This is a conversation that theologians have. The conversation that Jesus had with her was deep. It was respectful. And I think out of that, just a little because of time constraints, the little thing I want to pull out of there is that Jesus sees who you are in all of your way, in all of your life. And you know what? He does not judge. He accepts you. He cares for you. He meets you where you are at. And I think that we would desire to be like Jesus. And that is to be a safe place for people who are alone, who are carrying stories. You, you see, whatever story we put to her backstory, it's filled with pain. Whether it's pain she caused or whether it was pain caused to her, regardless, she needed this love and acceptance. And there are people around us who are carrying stories too heavy to bear. Can we see brokenness without shaming, without judging, without condemning, without lecturing? Can we do this? It's what we're called to do. It's what we see Jesus doing right here in, in front of us. And I'll tell you why it's important. Because a person will only open themselves up to someone else if they know they are cared for and they are safe. The Samaritan woman believed and she, she bolted. It was great. She left like I left my chest protector. She left her water jar and she cried out to everyone in the village, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? Now, the thing is, is we say, you understand, you have to read this with tone. I'm not an actor or inflection. You know, she's not saying, huh, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, could this be the Messiah? Eh. That's not what she was saying. What She was so excited 
that she was saying, can this be the Messiah already believing that he was? There's so much in that moment in her excitement. She forgot about her water jar. She left it. She was overwhelmed with the need to share the good news. Her history, the pain, regardless of the source, regardless of the why, hear this, because this is true for each one of you. The story, her story, her history of pain, regardless of it was brought on by her or brought on by others, became the very evidence, the very foundation with which she used to bring a village to the Messiah. No longer isolated for whatever reason she came. I mean, this also holds deep meaning for me, for those who have suffered tragedy or pain and whether again I want to keep tuning the stereo back and forth whether it was because of her or because of others Jesus blesses and he validates the woman's testimony they went out from that city and they came to him I mean just visualize right now they're up on a slope. There's the well, which, oh, by the way, I could have said so much more about the well. Who dug the well? Jacob's well. What that was all about. But, but we're here on the slopes. And, and he's looking and he's watching. And, and they're coming. They're coming from the village up to him. And the disciples, as marveled and as confused and as baffled as ever, are saying, uh... We brought you some food to eat. So, you know, and Jesus says, I have food to eat, which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him food? This should remind you of Nicodemus and some other conversations that we've seen and, and will see in the future. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. So the disciples went into the village to get uh, food for themselves and for Jesus. They left Jesus. He was tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. And uh, they came back and they said, Jesus, we've, we've, we've brought you something. They didn't know what else to say. Remember, they're, they're deeply confused at this point. So they're trying to figure out, what do we do now? Let's give him some food. And Jesus still ever in the spiritual moment, says, I've got food that you don't know anything about. And he says this, don't, uh, don't you, you say that there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Look up, look up. In other words, the miraculous was happening immediately around them and they're worried about giving Jesus a sandwich. And they're coming up. They're coming up to him and he says, the fields are white to harvest. It is not four months. It is right now. It is right here. And sometimes the harvest is right now and it's right here. And sometimes we don't see it. Eat something, Jesus. You're hungry. You're tired. People are on the doorstep. Verse 39, it says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word that the, the woman testified. 
I find this marvelous that we can have, through the agency of the Spirit, some participation in other people coming to Jesus Christ as Savior. And so uh, they did. Now, this next part in uh, verse uh, uh, 40, you know, where he stayed there two days, they asked him to stay two days. Without giving a, a whole nother history lesson here, you have to understand that there was utter animosity between these two groups. Jews wouldn't even go through Samaria. They, they would go all the way around it in order to come back up to uh, Jerusalem, and yet they asked him to stay, and he stayed. And then the scripture says that many more believed him because of his words, more so than the woman's words. And in verse 42, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We should be like this woman. We should be like this woman. God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. If you've known Jesus Christ since your childhood, and you have an excellent relationship with him, I'm telling you, there is more that he wants to bring to you. If you know him, and you would like to improve that relationship, there is more that he wants to bring to you. If you do not know him as Savior, now is the time to see that for you to trust, the risen Christ as your Savior by faith, and you will be saved. I mean, the question is, is, are we ready? Do we even have an inkling of what it means to leave that water pot behind and tell others of Christ? I want to make one final note in closing, and that's from Luke twenty-three thirty-four. You all know it. I don't have to go there. Jesus said something. He said, Father, forgive them. He's telling us something about his Father, our God. Father, forgive. These words go well together because there are so many other scriptures that tell us that the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. Indeed, it's in God's very character to forgive. I mean, again and again, from whether you heard them or only heard the ones that I pointed out, I have used the word left. There's a reason why. Today, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, it is not possible for us to not be reminded of another Friday, another day when Jesus was alone, when Jesus thirsted in the heat of the day, and when he again asked for water. And on that day, he was essentially mocked with vinegar. But even there, 
we see this word again. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It is the same word, the same root, a different form. The word forgive is from precisely the same root word that I've been using this entire sermon. Left. If you've ever wondered what it means to forgive, and if you've ever wondered what it means that God forgave you, think of the woman at the well. She left her water pot. Because in the light of Jesus, it is no longer important. Because of the work of Christ, God, like the father seeing the prodigal son, who had left home seemingly for good, at a distance, left what he was doing and ran. He ran and he left the punishment due us on the cross. Jesus, the Messiah, bore it. All of it. As the song Phillips Craig and Dean wrote, Almighty God, the great I am, immovable rock, omnipotent, powerful, awesome Lord, victorious warrior, commanding king of kings, mighty conqueror. And the only time I ever saw him run was when he ran to me. He took me in his arms, held my head to his chest said, my sons come home again, lifted my face, wiped the tears from my eyes with forgiveness in his voice. He said, son, do you know I still love you? He caught me by surprise when God ran. God's heart is not quick to condemn. It is not. Those of you who may feel the condemnation of God upon you, understand that's more internal than external. God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There will be a day, there will be a time of God's wrath, but it is not this day. Today is a day of salvation. Thanks be to God. He is risen.